Yeah. How did they even spin this one? I have oh. no idea. To like, this how do you it was spin a, this? It was just a, a ratings grab. Just, it was, no, I mean, like, I know, unfair I know. things happen all the time. Yeah. But, <laughs> right. like, this level is, is pretty remarkable. Exactly. Like, just pure cheating on a... On a grandiose On an industrial scale. level. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hello, and welcome back, everybody, to the second episode of C-Squared. We have a very special guest today in the house, four-time U.S. national champion, twice candidate, uh, multiple times Olympic medalist. Well, the legend himself, Yasser Sarawan. Yasser, welcome uh, to the podcast. Thank you so much, Christian. Thank you, Fabi, for inviting me. I feel like... Uh, you got the wrong guy, but I'll go with it. <laughs> no, I think we got exactly the right guy. Okay, let's give it a shot. Absolutely. So, yeah, sir, let's start with your introduction to chess. I think this is the most fit place to start. How did you get into chess? By accident. Seriously, uh, totally by accident. I, it, it was so far removed from anything I would have ever expected. So, first of all, as a young man, young boy, I was really, really athletic. I mean, just I was into all the presidential physical fitness stuff, um, full contact karate. Um, I love surfing. Like surfing was an absolute, absolute passion. And uh, racquetball, I was a lifeguard, uh, all kinds of things. Where did you live at that point? All over the United States. My family traveled a lot, but my favorite place by far was Virginia Beach, Virginia, where I lived until June of 1972. And then my, I had finished the elementary school, W.T. Cook Elementary, and my family uh, moved back to Seattle. And I think it was Mark Twain that said the best uh, winter I ever I ever spent was a summer in Seattle. <laughs> and I went to Seattle, and I don't know what the records were, but 1972, it rained, and not only did it rain, I mean I'm talking profusely. You just, it just didn't go anywhere, and because we had moved from Virginia Beach, Virginia, to Seattle, so we had all of our stuff trucked across the United States, and it was crazy. It was the Olympics, and a hero of mine, Mark Spitz, was in the Olympics. He was a swimmer. And he had set a goal of winning seven gold medals. Like, nobody in the history had ever done anything even remotely similar to this. And I was thrilled completely caught up but we didn't have a tv the tv hadn't arrived it's like oh my god so above us we lived in a duplex and above us lived a, a paraplegic um uh, david chapman he had a tv <laughs> this was crucial to watching the olympics but the crazy part in those days is you didn't know when the olympics was going to come on like seriously you just turned on the channel, you kept it on ABC, then came like 30 minutes of Olympics, then they did other regular programming, news doesn't matter, and then another 30 minutes, and then somehow in the evening they would have uh, a show. So it was really hit and miss. So in between those pauses, David had a, a, a 
closet full of games. Mm. Uh, the Parcheesis ah, okay. and, you know, mm -hmm. the backgammons and all the games that you, you, you're from. Went through a lot, a lot of card games. And it, it always went. This was our um, modus. He would tell me and teach me all the rules. We'd play like two, three, four games. He'd win them all. I'd win one. Next game. <laughs> the moment I won a game, it was the next game. And we were just going right through his closet while watching the Olympics. He pulls out a chess set. Mm. Or maybe he even just flipped. So, yeah, so you were, you were around 12 years old. I was when, 12. And that's a, that's a pretty late age to learn oh, chess. Oh, incredibly late. No question that's about it. That's very rare among top chess players or like the best players in the world but at some point. They exactly. always start at four years old, five years <laughs> five, old, seven, eight, you're right. eight, you know, that's the latest, That's right? even late, yeah. right? Actually, so 12 is ridiculous. Start? I started when I was five. Same here, five and a half. Dang. So for me, I was like way, way. I think Victor Korchnoi was also a real, real late starter. But he, had, he had an interesting story too because he, I mean, um, well, his chest development was so stunted because he was living in Leningrad during right. the siege War of Leningrad, baby. right? Yeah, yeah, he and went to live with his grandma. Yeah, and that's like, it's not a guarantee that you survive a situation like that. Exactly, deprivation, unbelievable. Anyway, maybe we flip the checker set yeah. over to the chess set. For a couple of games. Yeah, he teaches me the rules. And he beats me badly. He's beating me badly. No, I'm not talking like four games, but I'm talking like 10, 20, 30. In checkers. No, Not in chess. 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 In Got chess, it. he's destroying me. And what's even worse, I'm not getting even any closer. It was like the games are one-sided, and they kept being one-sided. I was throwing up my hands. I was, like, disturbed. I said, David, how did you become so good? And he said, well, I'm not so good. I said, you're not? He says, no, at the University of Washington in Seattle, where I learned the game, there's a, there's a coffee shop there, the last exit on Brooklyn, and those guys kill me. I go, well, you're killing me. <laughs> so I went to the coffee shop, and that's where I saw people playing with a chess clock. I was totally mesmerized by this chess clock. Tell right? us about your emotions when you saw the chess clock, you saw the action, the speed, everything in between. Everything. How did you make uh, yourself, how did you give yourself courage to uh, like, I challenge those guys? I didn't. I just sat there and watched. Uh, everything was remarkable. I was clueless. Mm. I was absolutely clueless that chess was an organized game. I mean, you, you know, you, if I took out a Monopoly set, you didn't expect that there would be an organized Monopoly tournament. Yeah, You'll be shocked to realize there are. Even these days when chess is much, much more well known, there's yeah. still people who are like, but you make a living off of chess? Yeah, How is exactly. that possible? Right? right? Absolutely. So all of those things. and. And the other thing that was really remarkable for me, because again, this was like first, you know, appearance, was the age. Mm -hmm. I was by far the youngest, by far. You say I was uh, a late bloomer, but all the 16, 18, all the way to 60-year-olds were playing Well, those like chess. coffee shops are usually... Right. Dominated by like the more experienced chess players, the older Precisely. chess players, right? That's, that was my experience in New York too. Exactly, exactly. And Seattle had a good smattering of masters, but we're talking about class A and expert players in the coffee shop. Later, I would meet some of the really top 
dogs. But also in, 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 in New York and Brooklyn, you get the trash talkers. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah. How New York has a, has a great scene. Pardon? How about Seattle? Yeah. Uh, no, that, did, that, that, that really was a New York thing, seriously. New York thing only. Yeah. Um, and if there was any trash talking, it was on such a soft level that, you know, like it was almost like, let me read you some poetry <laughs> or something like that. So, so that's where he got it from. Right. So it was sort of like these guys would eventually say, would you like to play? And I said, well, like, really? Like, can I? And then they clobber me badly, like really worse. And this would happen. Like, Did they want to play for money? No, 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 no. Just, no, just, just for fun. Just, just for fun. Okay. And um, more or less, July kind of went. And I was just like, I was vexed. I was really like, what's wrong with me, right? <laughs> so I remember this very vividly. I went back and I decided that I was lousy. I was just totally lousy. And I would play David one last game. And I was black and I had a queen on c7 and I had a bishop on d6. And I consciously captured his pawn on g3 with my bishop. And he took it. And I recaptured the pawn on g3 with my queen, which was with a check. He had to move into the corner. And I took on h3, and he had to move back to g1. And I checked him again on g3. We w went back and forth about <laughs> 20 times. And did you guys know about their no, perpetual? No. <laughs> And I said, well, well, well what what's do we do that? Now? What do we do now? He says, I think it's a tie. <laughs> a tie. I'll take that. It wasn't <laughs> a victory, but it was a tie. Yeah. And then I, like, rush back. So just speaking of this, there, there's a, a very similar game to chess, Chinese chess. Right. Where you can't do this. Right. You have to You're break not the to. perpetual. Someone, someone has to, to break the perpetual. Right. There's, there's no way to, to tie a game in this battle. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So what do you do? At that point. Someone has to continue in another way. And then another way. Even if it's bad for their position, they just have to. If you keep repeating, the person who who initiated is forfeited. Really? Yeah. I, I think that's the rule, yeah. I do, th I do too, even though I don't play the... I've only played to take that into consideration when you're going into those type of <laughs> yeah. rounds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like keep I keep initiate, that in mind, yeah. I initiate, but and how do you he, determine that? How do you determine Whoever who makes that first... Well, like, let's say in this case it would be Yasser, because right. he's the Bishop one playing Queen G3, Queen, Queen, Queen H3. G3. Mm. Mm. So I was thrilled that I got a tie. And then I started playing... And then somebody showed me the smothered mate where you give up your queen. Now you have to understand, I was terrible at chess and I worshiped my queen. Like if I lost my queen, I just didn't even know how to play with the other pieces. And people, us, the grandmasters, we really forget how difficult it was to learn and absorb, absorb all the rules. Like. I was forever making illegal moves. I mean, Yasser, did, did you watch the St. Louis Rapid and Blitz? Yeah, I did. Where there I'm was not three sure. illegal moves. <laughs> three in one game. <laughs> in one, or two in one game and one in the other. I mean, it was hilarious. And I, I said to Shakriar that uh, the commentators had decided to award him the Compamanas Prize. The Compamanas Prize is for the best cheater in the competition. And unfortunately, he had no uh, competition. He had it all to himself. He said, I'm, I'm very deserving think, of the Compamanas. I think he was cracking himself up. Uh, yeah, at exactly. Some point. 
That is like I've never seen that before. But no, it's pretty rare to be uh, to be blunt. Um, so somebody showed me the smothered mate. I was Perplexed. absolutely thrilled because somebody voluntarily gave up their queen. It's unimaginable. Somebody, you know, I lose my queen, I lose the game. End of story. But voluntarily, and I literally, I was on a bicycle and I, I ran home to my mom. She's in the kitchen doing the dishes. I pull her out the kitchen. I set up the board and look, mom, I go here. The king has to go there and I go here and I get smothered me. She said, uh, son, that's, that's wonderful. Can I go back and... <laughs> Finish the dishes. Casting pearls away. That's the thing about uh, the chess, right? Right. Like if you don't have any familiarity with it, it just means nothing to you. Exactly. And that was sort of how I fell into the game. And then the crazy part was, and I'm not joking, Bobby Fisher, Boris Spassky mm. Occurred almost yeah. simultaneously with my learning the game. And That's I it. would go to the last exit, and the guys would have the New York Times newspaper. They'd have uh, the game notation, which was, to again, for me, this was like, what? What's a, a notation, right? Like a score sheet. Right. So then they would replay the game exactly as the players played it. And they try to figure out why Bobby made this move and why, you know, the, the evil Soviet guy, Boris Vasky, played the other move. And this went on and on. And now I was really, I, I was mesmerized. So I didn't want to appear stupid, you know, like it, what they were doing was Greek. And I went to the Seattle Public Library, which is actually a pretty decent library. And I went in to look for chess books. And my God, it was pathetic. It was really, really, really hard finding, uh, let's say, a Fred Reinfeld book, mm -hmm. but just to teach you how to make the notation. And remember, it was all English descriptive. It wasn't the algebraic yeah. of today. It was mm -hmm. king's knight to queen's bishop four. What's the king's knight? <laughs> Which one? So much more information than we have today, right? <laughs> I have um, I have Fisher's book still still in that that form of notation. Yeah, yeah, right. And I can't I can't really get used to it. <laughs> no, I mean I can understand it, but I can't really get used to it. You know. Well, the, actually, I had the reverse problem. After I got used to it, after I had managed master descriptive then came algebraic and you should see my score sheets pawn to queen four knight to f6 <laughs> pawn to bishop, queen bishop four g6 you know? <laughs> and then when it was late in the game then it was all knight takes pawn queen takes knight <laughs> yeah, yeah. No more i rooms. forgot about h6 and g8 yeah, and i could never else. figure out notation as a kid i just couldn't figure it out like i don't know which age i Mastered being able mastered. to keep yeah. a full game score accurately, right. but all my coaches would be like, "What are you? What are you <laughs> writing? What are these games?" We would spend half the lesson like just trying to figure out what the moves were. Right. I would I would forget I would forget a move here, forget a move there. Right. Everything would get messed up. I was yeah. just like very forgetful as a kid. Okay, but it goes to show <clears throat> just how difficult chess is. Mm -hmm. And the mastery 
of and chess. And that's actually what I want to ask you took about. So Did you master it quickly? No. Did you get good fast? No, I, I would say just rather the opposite. And uh, um, really what happened with me, again, I kind of, I was really, really fortunate. I fell into a, a, a circle of friends who were older than me by a few years who really, you know, kind of took care of me and said, hey, there's a chess tournament uh, in Bellevue. You got, you need a ride. Would you like to play? Was this that a kind big thing? thing for you, the social aspect? Because for me, oh, huge. this was the biggest thing. I was pretty good at it. Right. I was beating most of my peers at that mm -hmm. time. But for me, it was just like going to the club. This is what I like. Right. Taking the bus, going to the club by myself and just playing for like two, three hours. And that gave me the most pleasure. Was that as well for you? No, that I understand what you mean about the independence, but for me it was something else altogether, and it was the social acceptance. I'm 12 years mm. old, you know, I want to be accepted by my adult peers. You know, I don't want to be this 12-year-old that goes, hey, Dad, why is the sky blue? You know, I want to be somebody that you want to have a conversation with. And what was really shocking was all of these chess players are much older than me and they're willingly accepting me in their social circle. Like, hey, you know, we're going to go out and have lunch. You want to join us? Mm. Yeah, sure. And then I'd be a part of the conversation. So my adulthood, my young adulthood was, uh, was chess was like sort of like this doorway that opened up right i'd go to school and all my teachers would be te would be treating me like i'm a 12 13 year old suddenly i'm in the chess club and hey yaz is here hey you know like you're really good let's play bug house together you'll be on my team okay you know that kind of thing so Did that you have was any really attractive no no uh again uh it's such a different period of time mm -hmm. i can't even it express it but uh to go backwards and forwards for just a moment i played in my first tournament i'm going to say in like november of 1972 so a number of months after i had learned the game and i got a first provisional northwest rating of about i'm gonna say 1100 and I was vastly overrated. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I remember this. This was hilarious. So we would play these tournaments. These were the five-game Swiss weekend events. We played three on Saturday, two on Sunday. So the first day, I lost all my games. Three, three, zero for three. And the next day, Sunday, I won both my games, which is how I got the seat incredibly inflated rating of 1100 <laughs> and they gave me a trophy wow and the trophy that I won and I felt I was deserving because after all I did win two games was the best under 14 what I didn't realize until years later I was the only player <laughs> under 14 I would have won it no matter what prize so, is a prize <laughs> right, exactly and uh I was coming home and I opened up the front door and walked down the hallway and, and the kitchen was the family room. Everybody went to the kitchen. That was where it was warm. That was where we have tea and you know snacks. And as you walk through the doorway, right above the doorway, those old clocks, you know, uh -huh. plastic clocks. So like, you know, everybody in my family knew I'd lost my first three games and I could hear the whispers. How do you do? How did you do? How do you do? 
And, you know, I had hit the trophy behind my back. So I'm walking with my hands behind my back. How do you think he did? How do you think he did? I walked through the doorway. The clock fell down, hit me on the head, crashed on the, on the floor, and burst into pieces. It was a cheap plastic clock. My mom said, oh, my God, I think his, he won. His ego's so big, he can't get through the door. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody cracks up. I full produce the trophy. You know? And I would more or less say at that point, you know, my career was clear. You know, like I was enjoying chess yeah. so much. But yes, sir, did and, you feel any pressure? Because that's a big uh, thing nowadays with parents pressuring their kids to uh, perform. Did you feel that from your parents as well? Definitely not. Not so much. No, no, no. First of all, I was very, very good at school. Like it, it just came natural, and I thought that school was very boring. So I mean, I really liked chess a lot. I liked a lot of other stuff. I still did my sports and, and stuff, but okay. So, so chess was the main thing, right? Yeah. And everything hobby. else was a hobby. Yeah. Or was well, chess a well, hobby I, as well? I, I, I made money by being a lifeguard. So. Uh, yeah, so chess was kind of this hobby, but really, really great interest. Mm. And my parents made a deal. Hey, man, this is really simple. You get A's, you, you can go play chess. in the chess tournament, and we'll support you and pay Were they fees. funding your tournaments, no, your travels? No, not really. Or? Later, um, okay, so by the time I'm like 14, two years in, I'm a class player class player and you know 1900 and stuff like that which everybody said was really good which i didn't think was really good because we had these chess masters i wanted to play in the state mm, championship yeah. but you needed to like a 2200 rating right so i became an expert it was a big deal and more or less at that time arnie garcia a local uh chess master if you will he, he he was very wealthy. He helped me a lot. He supported me going to tournaments. He put up uh, chess match monies and things like this. So having this like sponsor, and again, when I'm talking about sponsor, I'm talking about sixty bucks a month. <laughs> you know, the, you know these like little things, but meaningful. You know, I there didn't wasn't to... much money in chess at the time. No, because nothing. this was still. Not fully, you know, after the Fisher boom, right? Yeah. This was still no. very, very it's close still, to that period. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So a lot of people just don't get it about the Fisher boom. So, okay, let me put it in perspective for you. In 1969, uh, the most important matches in the world were the World Championship match, Basque and Petrosian. Yeah. They, they played for 6,000 rubles. That was the that's a lot of money, huh? Or <laughs> six thousand rubles yeah. was about six thousand dollars. Really? Yeah. Oh. But but yeah, chess players were very well respected and treated in the Soviet Union. They yes. Still are. Oh 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 yeah. oh big time big time. No, of oh. course it's still oh, very respected. Oh, oh, yeah. But yeah. back then it was like it was an exalted position. Sure. For chess players they had the, dashas and they had they were getting, like, apartments and, and they like had a car and driver. And, oh yeah 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 no 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 they enjoyed. A, from what the Soviet Union could provide, they were really well, well treated. In 1972, along comes Bobby Fischer, and I believe, I could be mistaken, but I believe the Afide had this minimum. We're gonna say $10,000, just $10,000. Mm -hmm. 
above. He said, no, man, that's not good enough. That's just, no, no, that's nowhere good enough. It's got to be 50,000. Mm. People like shocked. Didn't like, they no, gain much more than that? Wasn't it like 200? It, it's coming. Uh, 50,000. Like, Peter, he said, no, 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 there's no way you're going to get 50. No, 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 there's no way you're going to get 50. And it was like, Yugoslavia said, okay, we'll give you 100. Ooh, mm. like, ooh, this is really, Bobby, ah, I'm not sure I want to play. I don't know about this. I don't know about this. But I like, I like that. And then the, the, and then the Icelanders matched the Yugoslavs. And they said, we'll give you 100. It was like, oh, I don't know. And Bobby was throwing all of these tantrums. So then the Icelanders said, we'll give you 125,000. It's like the whole world ch chess world stopped. Said 125,000. This is like an astronomical amount of money. And Bobby, I don't want to, I don't know. Leonard Barden uh, had a student, James Slater. James Slater said, dude, you're a chicken. You're a coward. I will double the prize fund, and you can play for $250,000. i am calling you out. Bobby got on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but really, I mean, if you, I mean, it was sort of like, it just escalated, it escalated, it escalated. And then when the match was going on, it got such worldwide attention. It was like the best money Iceland ever spent, like, Everybody knew where Reykjavik was on the map, and it was just amazing. I became a chess expert, and again, I, now I'm about 15, and I couldn't pierce 2200. I just couldn't get through that. And I remember I had traveled to Lincoln, Nebraska to play in the U.S. Open. How would you say the ratings were compared to the ratings that we have today in terms of strength? Would you say there has been some rating inflation, 2200? Yes. What's yeah. the strength nowadays? Yeah, there's been a great deal of rating inflation, but also keep in mind that the numbers are staggeringly higher mm. today than they were when I started. So if, um, if the USCF has 100,000 members today, you know, maybe in 1970 they had, let's just say, 15. And then along comes Bobby Fischer, and then suddenly they have 80. But everybody's like a beginner. The, right. the, the good guys are really incredibly good. Actually, speaking of, like, the difference between chess players today compared to 50 years ago, mm. like, how do you view chess as you see it today right. not just from the best players in the world but from right. all levels that you see i'll definitely come to that i just wanted to say what happened to me <clears throat> was i went to lincoln i played these 12 rounds these are like a really long tournament right like yeah. one round a day <clears throat> and i had like a 25 50 performance i skipped 2200 i became 2300 i was like what how, how, how do you do that? I mean, I gained 100 rating points in one uh, event, more than maybe 125. And I expected that I would come back down because I was so overrated. But somehow I kept just going. So I started in 1972. In 1979, I got my like third and final grandmaster norm. So I was like seven years be mm -hmm. be between the time I started and became a, and yeah, became a that's grandmaster. Remarkable, that was remarkably a remarkably short period like, of time. Yeah. yeah. But it was a lot 
lot different than what you're making you're thinking and I'll get to your question about the 50 what what's the difference over the last 50 years was it's incredibly hard to get an international grandmaster norm in the 70s and 80s because you actually had to play against mm -hmm. grandmasters yeah. and in 1987 when Gary Kasparov started the GMA, the Grandmasters Association, I was one of the board members of the GMA, uh, we were going to give one member per vote. And the question was, was how many over-the-board Grandmasters were there? I'm not talking about correspondence Grandmasters. And we went through the whole list. Angie Day helped us, and it was 120. I would have guessed 200. Grandmasters in the world. 120. And the vast majority of them came from two countries. Russia. Russia. And uh, Soviet Union. Soviet Union, USSR. Two yeah. countries that don't exist. Oh, Yugoslavia. Correct. Mm. Those two countries had the vast majority, so we had to handicap their members. And we said, because if those two countries joined forces, they could completely <laughs> <laughs> have their own slate yeah. of uh, officers and change the Constitution. So we said that those two countries couldn't have more than 49.9% of the vote. And it was actually pretty funny. If you, so think about it for a moment. 120 grandmasters, more than half are in those two countries. So if you don't visit those countries, how are you ever going to make a grandmaster norm? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. pretty hilarious yeah. when you think about it. Was it the right? same system where you had to play three grandmasters a tournament? Exactly. Okay, and it was very difficult to come by them. Exactly. So you had to play in one of these top events, basically. Exactly. Right? Okay. And it was pretty pretty hard to get into those events too, because again, you needed those incredible ratings. How many games were you playing per year? That's a good question. Because nowadays, most players play like 50, 60 games at least. I if you're a professional chess player, I would say yeah, 50, 60. I was probably playing about 100, but the problem was, was about 80 of those games, maybe even more, were in open tournaments. Right. I was raised on the American Swiss. Mm -hmm. uh, to your question of the differences of today and yesterday, have you ever seen those uh, marvelous movies about Le Mans? Le Mans is an auto race, 24-hour race. Oh, yeah, race. I've of seen course. one of yes. them. Right, yes. and you see those old cars, mm -hmm. you know, on the track, you know, and then you see some, you know, Formula One race today, and you go, oh, my God, they hit the gas, and you go from zero to 200 in two and a half seconds. There, you know, like they hit the pedal for six hours, <laughs> and they get up to 90. That's what I think. I think the differences are so great today that it, 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 it's just incomparable. And I remember that uh, Tigran Petrosian was uh, very dismissive, not of me personally, but of my generation. You're children of the informator. Mm, yeah, <laughs> famous quote. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and today we might say you're children of the computer. Of the you know? Well, I feel With even even like I'm sure this is how the previous generation to me feels, but I feel this way about the generation after me, right? The <laughs> right. young kids who are now improving. Yeah, I'm like. They, these guys play differently in some way. Right. They just see the game a bit differently. Like Gukesh and Yeah, yeah or it. or take any sixteen, seventeen, eighteen year old. Precisely. Maybe the differences are a bit less extreme than right. let's say between a, a player who was raised entirely on 
books and not computers and over the board play and someone who who you know was in that period where computers were beginning to get strong right but still i i see the differences and it's like this is this is amazing it truly is and when you when i think of quote the tools i had and then i think of quote the tools today first of all i didn't have tools i didn't even have a hammer what do i mean by that i mean today we think of books yeah oh yeah bobby you see these pictures of bobby with these books man he'd have a book and uh, uh he'd be studying sorry that's bs it really is truly bs bobby had a book it was called spasky book mm. it was this book of boris spasky's games and just his games yeah wow with no annotations and he memorized the book he just memorized everything. he memorized all of spasky's, all of games. spasky's wow. games so and you know that was the way he would win his dinners <laughs> i kid you not we go out to dinner together and he's got the spasky book man so, uh, Bobby, we're splitting the check, right? Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Uh, if you pick a game, I could tell you what that game was, uh, but then you gotta pick up the check. You're gonna tell me all the moves of a 70-move game. So people would rifle through the book to try to find the longest game. <laughs> and you gotta say accurately the moves. If you get the moves wrong, you're picking up the check. Yeah, 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 it's the Bobby. And he would do that. That's a very serious hustle. Serious hustle. Yes. <laughs> so really, I would go to the Seattle Public Library and there'd be a book by Chernev, a book by Reinfeld, a book by Reuben Fine. Like my Bible was Reuben Fine's Basic Chess Endings. Mm -hmm. Which has like 900 mistakes in the analysis. Oh, yeah. you know, oh, it's... Like, it's like, what? Today, they have computer, you can play against the computer engines, bishop and knight versus king. Like, Danya did it in like 15 seconds, right? Yeah. You know, like, impressive, like, right? So actually, um, just like a tiny side note. Sure. Uh, so how, how many seconds do you think you'd need over the board to mate with bishop and knight against king? No increment. How many seconds? Uh, yeah, I could probably do it in a minute. A minute? Yeah. But what do you think, is that the lowest you, th you, would, you would comfortably feel that you could do it in? Maybe with a little practice, and if I focus, maybe I could push it down further, but not by much. So there's one chess player that I saw do this in 10 seconds consistently against me. So I, I, yeah, I, I you're saw trying it with, my, with my own eyes. Can you guess the player? Lawrence Trent. No way. I was like, there's no way you could no do it. No way. How ten can seconds. anyone do it in 10 seconds? But well, consistently. He just got consistent. the pattern down to yeah. the science. It was amazing. Wow. That's really, really cool. And so, I mean, for me, uh, somebody, uh, for me, the Soviet championships were just amazing. Like, these were the national champion. The, the, the joke at the time was it was harder to become the Soviet champion than the world champion. Like, this is like a 22-player a, a field. I mean, that features Karpov and Gallagher and Petrosian and Paul Kares and you know, like Victor Korchnoi, just David Bronstein and every name under the sun that you can imagine. And it was sort of like, oh, my gosh, you know, like, give me this golden treasure, you know, like somebody would have, like, 
bulletin number five. <laughs> Not somebody else would have bulletin number nine. I'll trade you, you know, the zero. Did you, did you have to did you have to buy these or was it like yeah. you had to know somebody to get these? Well again, my, my, my circle of friends. We, there was a lot of mutual helping, let's okay. just put it like yeah. that. I mean nobody ever did anything for a commercial mm-hmm. uh, result. And you know these guys were on a different plane of knowledge. They, my God, they played 15 moves of theory. I was like, should I play the French defense and what do I do against the advance? <laughs> you know, like, you know, okay, like so I have a question for it you. It was crazy. Yesterday. So it's a different era. This is, yeah. And the tools. I had no tools. But also, there's something about the Soviets, right? Yeah. And you see it portrayed Cultural, in movies yeah. as well. They always go and chat together together right Right. with each other and i remember as a kid as well i was Mm. playing tournaments and nobody actually had any problems with kids speaking to each other in the middle of the game right that disappeared i think it was maybe like 15 years ago that disappeared now if you talk to anybody the arbiter is going to come to you yeah you're not allowed to talk to you you're not anyone else right i feel the emergence of the engines maybe influenced that a little bit right Right. because anybody has an engine you know if you say one engine move you win the game basically right at the right moment Uh, but how much do you think the soviets were actually you know 15 moves of theory he knew 10 and then he goes and speaks with his body in the middle of the round and his body says yeah we discussed this you can play that move yeah virtually zero seriously virtually zero i think this is such a myth from western haters if Mm. you will uh first of all i remember this wonderful quote uh bobby fisher saying you soviets cheat and paul caress saying but 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 bobby you know Tigran Petrosian, he's from Armenia, and uh, FM Geller, you're great. And he goes through all of these countries, you know. And Bobby says, I don't know, you're all Soviets to me. <laughs> you know? like, so the idea was that in the West, we kind of viewed the Soviet Union as some, you know, autocratic state where the citizens were these robots, you know, who you know, pledged their allegiance to the Communist Party and did everything to make their success possible. And in truth, those Soviet guys hated one another. (laughs) They were trying to beat the hell out of each other. Michael Bodvinik, the world champion, got voted off the Soviet team. Like, this is hilarious, right? But no, Bobby said the Soviets cheat. And then everybody immediately glommed onto this great idea that the Soviets were the greatest but, cheaters. But there are some time. stories, like some players, some pressure was put on them by who knows what, some exactly. government guy. Sure. And you're saying that there's no, there's no, no way behind I, the I'm, stories? No, on the contrary. I mean, I, I have no doubt that uh, certain results were fixed. Let's say somebody needed one win in the last round game to get a grandmaster title or a grandmaster norm mm-hmm. that was so hard to get that I, I don't have any doubts that uh, there were certain uh, moments where you go, oh, that looks like a really, really, really suspicious game and, you know, uh, these kinds of things. I'm not even talking about uh, this being done in bad faith. I'm mm-hmm. just talking about, like, yeah. you going and chatting with your buddy in exactly. the middle of the round. like. Exactly. 
you going and looking at his position and seeing something interesting that you guys maybe analyzed two days ago and then exactly. you start talking and chatting and laughing about it and saying oh, not necessarily done in yeah, bad faith right, right? but still right. even if you get a hint of right oh yeah i was supposed to go there or that idea is important yeah then you're going to again i see this as like obnoxious bs seriously because you got to understand you know imagine victor Korchner. The Soviet uh, bastion of Soviet uh, chess, uh, playing in a competition with Tigran Petrosian, and uh, Tigran Petrosian, uh, you know, is playing a uh, Bobby Fischer, and Bobby slips and makes an error in the opening, and Victor, you know, slaps Petrosian on the back. Come with me. Go to the bathroom. And I remember we walked. We talked about this at the Moscow Chess Club. This is how you yeah, defeat. This, you know? this seems, no, no, this this seems a bit no. a bit out there, a bit unlikely. No chance. A bit unlikely. Zero. But, but like specifically, so I'm not sure I'm getting the exact tournament right. But right. Bobby Kurosawa 62, right? Yes. This is correct. Precisely. Where he accused Soviet, Soviet chess players of, of prearranging draws. Correct. Which is a form of cheating. Correct. It's not as bad as prearranging decisive win or games, a loss. Yeah. but it's still something, right? Exactly. It's not entirely exactly. It's not entirely fair. Exactly. These these seem like likely allegations that that players would prearrange draws. I mean, this we know this happens, right? Sometimes, exactly. Right? I mean, they're I, boy. Uh, who was it? I want to say probably one of the most notable examples in my history was Ulf Anderson and Lubomir Lobojevic. Just look at them. Look, look, look at their... Lubo probably won one of the greatest games ever played against Ulf Anderson. And they analyzed that game for probably like two months together. Then they became great friends. And every game that they ever played thereafter was a draw. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they just drew every game. And you could just see it, right? And, you know, imagining that we're playing in a U.S. championship and... Uh, you know, uh, Fabi, you're a very good friend of Christian. And, you know, you guys making a draw together mm-hmm. doesn't surprise anybody you because you've been doing that year would, after year after su- year after year. It would year. surprise me a little bit. Of course, <laughs> of course. And, yes. you know, it was almost like that was a kind of an expectation that, hey, it still happens so to these long days. as you guys aren't throwing the point to one another, you're not injuring me. It still know, happens. Yeah, there, there is this idea. Or except this. what you were about to say, mm-hmm. maybe, was that the Curacao candidates were so long that they could pace. No, that, they that's one thing. They didn't lose energy. But I was speaking, thinking only from a modern chess point of view. Yeah. That, yeah, like, chess players have this conception that pre-ranging draws, it's like, it's like a soft crime. It's, right. not, it's nothing too serious, right? Yeah, it's not the A lot of, of people world. do it. But... Still, it's against the nature of the of sport course. in a sense because no question, it's a game where it's all supposed to be tested yeah. at the board, not yeah. before the game. Besides, I, you know, you prepare your openings or whatever, right. not after the game. Right. It's all during. I, I want to say, I, in my experience, uh, I was absolutely uh, one of those people who uh, uh, was aware. That you sh- you 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 don't prearrange a result, 
but I have. I, I had so many brotherhood pairings. I'd literally, I would go with friends from Seattle all the way, it doesn't matter, to Idaho, to San Diego, to LA. You know, I can't believe it. We got paired together. Yeah. We don't want to play each other. You want to make a draw? Yeah, okay, let's just make a draw. Mm-hmm. And so that was like, un- that was unfortunate. We wanted to play strangers, essentially, yeah, is course. what we wanted to do. Now, when you get to, for example, the candidates that played in the candidates tournament, it was never, never even a doubt that none of these games were prearranged. Mm-hmm. You just didn't even, you didn't even think it was. And I remember I was playing against Kevin Spraggett, right? Mm-hmm. And he's like Canadian. And it was like, the, I'm American. Uh, the, 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 the French were like, oh, the Canadian and an American are cro- close friends. <laughs> you know, they're going to make a draw with one another. No! I wanted to beat the hell out of Kevin. Yeah, of course, I'm sure he course, felt the same way. It was never any yeah. doubts. So it was like... Well, it, there is this rule in candidates. I don't know when it was implemented, but players from the same country face in the first or, and the eighth round. Right. To avoid... Of any, course, prearranging a game in the eighth round can also be very tournament-altering, you know? Right. But prearranging a game in the 14th round... It was worse. Uh, that that uh, can, uh, you know, decide the tournament on the spot, right? right? So that's why they try to avoid that in case... Exactly. Of course, like, everyone knows that I'm not going to prearrange a result with Hikaru. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, this is, exactly. But still, you have that rule in place just in case. Exactly. Uh, and indeed, uh, so that there's no doubt there's no uh, hanky-panky. And I remember this very vividly. It was somehow in the early 80s it came to be that the FIDE wanted to make a rule that not only don't you talk to your compatriots from the same country, but you just don't talk to anybody mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, more or less, I kind of liked that rule. I was like, like a very, very, very good rule. And again, I wasn't playing with a lot of Americans. In fact, I was usually the only American. But I had a really good friend, Jan Timmer. And uh, Jan and I w- often ha- hung out together uh, you know, during the tournaments, but we beat the hell out of each other. Like, I think Jan and I played like, seriously, not a joke, like 27 games, and I have a plus one mm-hmm. record against him. And the draws are few. So we beat the hell out of each other, but we hung out together and we're good friends. And we were in Indonesia playing, and Jan was just having a super, superb tournament. He was running away with it, and I was having a subpar result. I was like on some kind of a roller coaster ride, and I didn't even realize it at the time. But Lajos Portish was in second, and I played seriously what my, maybe the game of my life against Lajos. I just made some wonderful sacrifices. It was all wonderful. It was really great. And somehow during the walk, there was a pretty big tournament hall. It was the Ladies' Cup. It's something like a, I'm going to say, 25-player round robin. <gasps> so it's got to be a pretty big playing hall. And I would talk to Jan, just like, hey, Jan, do you know where the sugar is? You know, something very innocuous. Mm-hmm. But in truth, you weren't supposed to talk to each other. Yeah. Stop. And Lajos called it, called me on it after the game. He said, I don't, I resigned, but I don't like the fact you were talking to Timma. And at first I was pissed. 
like, how, how dare you reproach me? You know, we're not Soviets. We don't talk. And I thought about it, and I said, I'll be damned. He's absolutely right. If we want this rule for the Soviets, we should, yeah, of course. Uh, we should of course. accept it ourselves. So after that, I was very, very, very careful. That was in the 80s, uh, you in said. The 80s. But I have to say, I was doing it in like the late 90s, you know. Yeah. But mostly when I was a kid, and yeah, I didn't exactly. know any better, right? You grew out of it, right? Yeah. You grow out of it, and obviously with, once again, the emergence of the engines, I think that changed everything. But it's much. also the, the tournament events themselves, as you get better, yes. and better, yes. and better, and better. All of those things that you did as a kid, you got rid of all of these bad yeah, habits, these little trickeries, and you became a solid professional. Let's get back to your uh, career, Yasser. Sure. Um, you became a grandmaster in seven years or something yeah. along those lines. Right. So I was like, at the time, I got my uh, final grandmaster norm in uh, Vaikansay, 1980. I was like 19 years and old and 10 months, let's say. And I got my third and final grandmaster norm. This is like, Wow, this was like just a dream come true. It was fantastic, blah, blah, blah. And I was really proud of myself. So I decided to look up who were the youngest grandmasters in history. And of course, there was Bobby Fisher's record. Never, ever to be broken. Not even close. Like, oh, like you mentioned that was around 14 years and, no, 15, 15, 15 and a little bit, right? Yeah, 15, 15 and a bit. Say 15 years and six months. Like, that's ridiculous. Like, that's like, Bob Beeman's, you know, world jump record. Just never will ever. Nobody ever, will ever no, touch no, that. No, 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 I mean, guy just floated in <laughs> midair. But who was number two? Who was number two? And it turned out that Boris Baskey, at 18 years and plus, was the second youngest grandmaster in history. So Bobby's had broken Boris by a huge by a margin. Yeah. And then close behind Boris was a guy, Henry Mecking from Brazil. He was the third youngest grandmaster at the time that I became the fourth youngest grandmaster. And I was like very boastful. I just like went around patting myself on the back. Hey man, this is like so cool. This is so cool. But nobody would ever beat Bobby's record. Now I don't mention it because <laughs> the 12 year olds kind of yeah. come up to me and say, you know, like I, I, I mean, every, it just seems like there's a hundred players who have beaten Bobby's record. Nobody would ever in the history of chess ever beat Bobby's record. Let's go uh, to 1986 for just a moment. In 1986, the Olympics were played in Dubai. Mm -hmm. And the Soviets were really, really upset because their world champion, Maya Chibernitsa, was behind Susan Polgar. So the Soviets agreed to support Kampamanis in the election on the provisio that all the women in the world would get a hundred bonus. Mm -hmm. Famous, famous story. Yeah, yeah. For free. Yeah. With the exceptions of the Polgar sisters who could get nothing <laughs> and just to, and Pia Kramling. And just to clarify, uh, the Polgars were playing for Hungary at that Correct. point. Correct. Not for the United States. No. no. And Pierre Kramling got 50. 
<laughs> because she was half and half. She played in How the, how did they even spin this one? I have oh. no idea. To like how do you it was spin a, this? It was just a, a ratings grab. Just it was No, I mean like I know, unfair I things know. happen all the time. Yeah. But <laughs> right. like this level is is pretty remarkable. Exactly. Like just pure cheating on a on a grand on an industrial scale. level. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He won re election. In nineteen eighty two, Compamanis came in in Luzerne, Switzerland, he uh, defeated Friedrich Olofsson in the presidential election. And he ran on a platform of one grandmaster per federation. That every federation in the world, from Trinidad to Tobago, just needs taking a, a name, needs a grandmaster. So we are going to make, we're going to change the rules so that every federation gets a grandmaster. Now remember, in 1987, there was 120. Hmm. 120. By the time I started Inside Chess in 1990, we had an interview, a first interview ever, with Walter Sean Brown, a sick Mr. Six-time, U.S. champion. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to try to do a, a, a Walter imitation. You know, Jesus Christ, you know, it's, it's pretty terrible. Like, 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 you know, these grandmaster titles, you know, like, like, man, you know, when I became a grandmaster, it was like me and one other guy for the whole year. And nobody was sure about the other guy, right? That other guy was Karpov. <laughs> nobody was sure about him. You know, they were sure about me. But now, now you go to these Olympias, Jesus Christ, man, they have... You know, a line around the block. You know, guys are getting the Grandmaster title by the hundreds. So we went from the days of the GMA in 1986 to 1993. We had like 1,200 Grandmasters. We went from 120 to 1,200 in like five, six years. I think we're approaching 2,000 right exactly. now. If we haven't surpassed it already. Exactly. It's, it's, slow, it's slowed 17, down, but yeah. Hundreds. So one other rule change and it was a crucial rule change so all of these thousands of rating points went into a pool and uh, because of the ladies players and this uh, i mean it just you know anatoly karpov was this dominant dominant world champion he, he won a tremendous number of tournaments and i think his peak during his greatest years was like 2670 no he was higher than that he came later he yeah. came later but the new rule that they instituted in the future Olympiads was like they had all of these teams with players that had, were unrated. Mm -hmm. So for Olympiads, they said everybody's 2,200. Mm -hmm. So suddenly, FIDE master norms and international master norms became uh, possible. And then they introduced the Continentals. And the idea at the Continentals were if you scored 50%, it was an IM title. Okay. When I won the World Junior Championship in 1979, I didn't get the Grandmaster Norm. I scored 10.5 out of 13. Today, if you win the World Junior Championship, it is not... Right. A GM norm. It's the title. The way that so, I became a FIDE master was I won in a Pan American youth event under 10, I think. Yeah. Under wow. 12, maybe. Yeah, you get the FIDE master. And I immediately right. got the FIDE master title. Wow, that's huge. And right? I was 
I was like 21, 90, 90, so it wasn't that far off, but it was a bit off. It wasn't that strength yet. But yeah, you could see Fide Masters who were like 1800, right? Right, or, right. Or whatever rating. Right, exactly. And these norms and titles, literally, I, I don't want to disparage any countries or anything like that, but you started to see tournaments being held that, that were literally there with one purpose. There was to create norms. Yeah, norm forms. No, 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 norm factories, yeah, yeah norm that's factories. what we what we just, you know, described them as. And where all my criticism aside, I do think there's an enormous number of players that are very, very deserving of the Grandmaster titles. And I think of players like yourself, if you take the top 10 of today and the top 10 of, say, the 80s, you guys would wipe us out. <laughs> you know? yeah. I mean, I just really feel that it's not even close. Now, for me, the thing with, like, GM norms is... Or these norm factories, yeah, they're they're not fair, and a lot of people strive for the GM title and don't right. make it, and a lot of people get it very unfairly. Right, and it's all very unfair. But the GM title itself doesn't really give you much in the chess world, right? Right. So if you unfairly get a GM title, and then right. you disappear, yeah, because you were never that strength, and and you don't improve after that, like what what do you gain out of it? I exactly. Mean, uh, you know, a fake title. So that's why I never saw it as a big problem. Like I've seen people right. discussing. I think you can use it outside of the chess world. So, for That's example, true. a lot yeah. of people, when they hear, oh, yeah, you're a grandmaster, they attribute a certain level of intellect. Yeah, I guess. you can get jobs based but on this, that. This right? is, yeah, uh, or scholarships. Scholarships, <laughs> of course. But this is just mean, especially if you're a young guy This is just a marketing girl. thing. Like, if I say to, to a non-chess player, I'm a grandmaster, they're like, okay. If I say I'm an international master, they're like, okay, I don't know which is better. Right. right? If I fide master, like if I was a fide master, or if I was a, a chess expert, which is right. two thousand level, yeah, I would probably put on my business card, "I'm a chess expert," because right. that sounds a lot and better. Expert <laughs> sounds great, right? So this but is where grandmaster is a big one, right? Yeah, because well, you can have kung fu grandmasters also, right? right? So people outside of the chess world think yeah. of oh, grandmasters, attend on, and so, so so. But if you go back to the seventies, people like Bill Lombardi. I don't want to say bitter, but yeah, I'm going to have to say bitter. So Bill's bitter because he got this Grandmaster title. He worked really, really, really hard. And then he's supposed to get these really great invitations from all of these organizers who are going to pay all of his travel, all of his mm -hmm. expense, and give him a thousand bucks because his presence alone helps the tournament get its Grandmaster yeah. norms or international master norms. And suddenly... Like, nobody's inviting Bill Lombardi because everybody's getting these norms elsewhere. And so it was sort of like Bill, Robert Byrne, you know, they dedicated a lot of their lives to getting this very, very difficult title. It was exalted. And then it became common. Cheapened, yeah, mm. yeah. in some ways. And so that hurt uh, a lot of the guys who had dedicated. Yeah. Uh, but today, you unfair. don't even think about it. We, it's we, undoubtedly unfair. I mean... Yeah. But so is the Susan Polgar thing. There's yeah, a lot of, course, of unfair of things. Course. So many unfair things <laughs> in, in, like in everything, hilarious. right? Would you say like people from the United States were having a much more difficult time getting the GM title compared to like people from Europe, let's say? Oh, by far. By far. I mean, it wasn't even close. And I want to say that today United States is um, has an extraordinarily high number of grandmasters. But that was due to immigration. And, you know, it was really, 
I was elated, seriously. First of all, I myself am an immigrant. But I was elated when people from the Soviet Union came. Leonid Shemkovich, Lev Albert, um, Anatoly Lane. Um, Kaidanov. Uh, Gregory Kaidanov, Alexander Yermolinsky, Alexander Shabalov. These guys brought an extraordinary wealth of knowledge, Roman Jinjiashvili. I mean, and they poured their knowledge into this American pool of chess understanding, and their presence raised our awareness. So I think I became a much, much, much better player. But then if you started looking at all of these grandmasters and grandmaster titles, you're like, wow, we sure, well, we sure attracted a lot. It wasn't like players, there were so many homegrown. One of those players, um, I don't think you mentioned his name, but I, I grew up on his book, The Road to Chess Improvement by Yermolinsky. By, I did mention, but yeah. Oh, yeah, Yerma. you did. Yeah, and, uh, fantastic. And, and one of my first coaches, not my first coach, but one of my first coaches, Miran Sher, also immigrated and, mm -hmm. and brought over his chess co coaching skills and coached a lot of the, the young chess players of, of my generation who right. later became grandmasters, guys like Robert Hess, guys like Mark Arnold, like the, this exactly. generation of players. Exactly. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I think it was, it was good for American chess. I, yeah. There's a lot of debate over this, right? Of course. A lot of people who see it a different way, but right. I think it's a or good bitter thing. that they lost a seat at the U.S. championship yeah. or maybe at a, of an Olympic team because, <laughs> you know, uh, the stronger yeah. Soviet grandmaster kind of came in and mm. swooped the place. But I had the absolute opposite. It was like, the stronger, the better. Come on over, come on over. Come on. Uh, but I, speaking of um, Nikolai, uh, my uh, trainer, uh, uh, from Bulgaria, Nikolai Minev. So he was an international master. And then you look at his credentials. He's like, he won, he wins all of these Bulgarian championships. He's number one on the Olympic team. You know, he holds Bodvinik to a draw, the Soviet versus Soviet Union versus Bulgaria match, and he just beats all of these players. It's like, dude, how, how could you not get the grandmaster title? You know? Mm -hmm. And it's just extraordinarily how good he was, but he couldn't be a professional chess player in Bulgaria, which supported chess. He was actually a medical doctor, okay? And he eventually, he gave up the practice of medicine to become the editor of the Bulgarian chess magazine because it paid better yeah. <laughs> than being a medical doctor. It was like, Wow, right? So uh, being a professional player today has a completely different meaning than what it was. Uh, I mean, I never, I obviously I was a professional player in the sense that I, I did dedicate myself to playing chess, but I could never afford to be a professional chess player. I literally, you know, was scraping to get money for, say, John Donaldson or mm -hmm. Nikolai to support, to get their support. Because, you know, I won U.S. championships where first prize was $6,000. I'm, I'm envious of uh, yeah, the first prize of... Uh, we're incredibly privileged today, of course. Truly, the, the truly. Elite, the top chess players. And, yeah. and even levels a bit below. Right. Because there's always this more and more chess tournaments and opportunities coming to chess. Now, online chess. Right. <clears throat> That's a whole different story. Exactly. That's a huge amount of money right. 
um, that's being brought into into chess. Oh, and there's I, a lot I, of I memes, right? There is also like Twitch. You can yeah, be aside cool. from just aside from yeah. just playing, you can be a commentator, right. streamer, I, writer. I, I gotta share this one story with you. This is great. <laughs> so I'm playing in 1984 in Berserkley, California. <laughs> The U.S. Championship, 16 players, 16 players, imagine with adjournments. Imagine how long the tournament is. Eight prizes, eight prizes. Uh, the bottom eight get point money for every point you get. Mm -hmm. Like you get a hundred bucks, so you get half a point. You get fifty bucks. So eight prizes for the top half, point money for the bottom half. And this tournament takes I don't care a month. Mm. But Roman Jinjihashvili and Cameron Shirazi are playing each other night after night, blitz man, for five bucks a game. Mm -hmm. And I'd come in and I'd see like Roman was way ahead, you know, by plus twenty. And the next day, you know, like what are you? What's now? It's plus forty-two. You know, they play till five in the morning. Plus forty-two, plus fifty-six. And you know, like wow, you won fifty-six games? No, it's a cumulative. So when is Cameron going to pay you? He's going to pay me with the point money that he makes in the tournament. Oh, really? <laughs> He's going to pay you with the point money he makes in the tournament. Cameron had like the worst tournament of his life. <laughs> worst tournament of his life. He makes one draw in the entire tournament, like 15 goose eggs or how many ever it was. And the one try he makes was against Roman Jinjihashvili. <laughs> so that Roman could be sure that the guy made some point money to pay him for the five minutes. That he was a... So or Shirazi, at least start the process, right? Yeah, exactly. Shirazi had... So he was a character in this very famous oh. movie, Searching for Bobby Fischer. Okay. They're in the park, and Josh um, and... He's sort of his chess coach, right? At the time, the... The okay. guy who's playing the park, they like see this commotion going on. They're like, it can only be one thing. It's Bobby Fisher has returned. Yes. So they go and they arrive, and it's uh, this kid, right? Like his, his nemesis in the movie. <laughs> but I remember earlier in the movie, there was a cameo. Uh, I don't, yeah, a cameo by Kamran Shirazi. Okay. They referred to him as Grandmaster Shirazi. Right. I, I don't think he was only international master, okay. but still a very strong player, right? Right. But he had this famous game. I think it was in that U.S. Championship, where he lost in I think it was six moves. Or something. Was it even that long? Jack Peters. Yeah. So, not to get too much into chess, but it was like e4, c5, c5 b4, b4, c takes b4, a3, black plays d5, counterattacking the center, white captures d5, black captures with the queen, a b, and Cameron's like. Why don't I take the pawn back? <laughs> a takes b4. He gets Queen. his pawn back. Queen e5. King and the rook. Right. Both attacked. And he loses his rook. And I guess he resigned at that he moment, resigned. right? Yeah. And this is really kind of funny because I'm playing my game. And we're all waiting, 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 waiting around. And Kamran rushes in. And in those days, it wasn't zero tolerance. It was like you get like 60 minutes An before hour. you get yeah. forfeited, right? So he comes in late. Probably overslept, even though we start the games, it doesn't matter at three in the afternoon. Come around playing Blitz all night, probably overslept. And, you know, he kind of rushes into the tournament hall, and then they're signing score sheets. And everybody's confused. Like, we're all looking at the game is finished. We think, well, this is pretty strange that Jack, even though Comrade is probably a better player than Jack, Comrade's playing so badly that. You know, why would Jack give him 
a draw so quickly with the black pieces. <laughs> and then we all discovered he had lost. It was pretty, pretty hilarious. By the way, Kamran really was... We had the Church's Fried Chicken tour. So uh, Bill Church uh, of Church's Fried Chicken, think in terms of Kentucky Fried mm. Chicken and Popeye's Chicken. So Bill Church <clears throat> was uh, several years in, the, in a row... The CEO, uh, he won the best CEO of the Standard and Poor 500. This was a serious guy. Mm -hmm. He loved chess, mm -hmm. and he had this chicken circuit where you could get chicken points by winning all of these tournaments. And Kamran would win these tournaments along with Igor Ivanov. They would go neck to neck. And oftentimes, um, winning the tour also got you a US championship invitation and things like that. And Kamran was amazingly good at winning Swisses. He had this gambler's kind of instinct, and he'd push the boundaries really, really hard. Oftentimes he failed, but he also won some really remarkably uh, great fighting games. And he, he again, he had like the worst <laughs> worst term of his career <laughs> at that particular moment. By the way, he that was the only game in my entire career that I was afraid of before I started the game. Against Kamran? Yeah. Why was that? Whenever I played Kasparov or Karpov, I was absolutely thrilled. I was doing backflips. I really, really wanted to play these guys. This is like the greatest honor in chess. You know, to play a Bent Larson. And you beat both of them. You beat oh, Kasparov yeah. and Karp. Oh, yeah. And, you know, to play a Bent Larson, to play a, 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 a Lajos Portish, a Jan Timon, a Victor Korchnoi, mm -hmm. these were like the legends of the game. And to play them and win, I, I loved it. And I never feared them. Never. I played Kamran. I was afraid. What Why? was it about it? His personality? No. His style of play? No, nothing it? like that. I'm fighting for first. Everybody's beating Kamran. <laughs> and now it's my turn. You have if to I don't win this game, you know, I'm going to be falling behind. Mm -hmm. And God forbid I lose because, you know, Kamran's capable of beating anybody on a given day. I mean, like, literally anybody. And now it's like I feel I absolutely have to win this game. It's like a forced win game. And that's not a good idea to go in with this it's very idea. very dangerous. You go in exactly. with that, and it usually backfires for you. Right? Big time. Yeah. Big that's time. my experience. I, whenever <laughs> exactly. I think I'm, I have to win this I game, have to I'm going to win game. this game. Right. Very often, just goes the other way. Exactly. Especially the in closed tournaments, you very of often course. see like the bottom seed actually beat the top seed in right. going into the eighth round, ninth round, or anything of exactly. that nature. Happens a lot. Now you mentioned uh, Korchnoi, and we were discussing about sure. ways to make a living as a chess yeah. player as well. You became a coach at, as well exactly. at some point. Tell exactly. Us a bit about that. It was the very strangest. Uh, story uh, in my career. So I, I, I've, I've won Vaikanze, mm -hmm. and I started with a win against Viktor Korchnoi and a win against Jan Timman. This was in 1979, right? 80. 80. In uh, 1980. Uh, so I beat the two top seeds in rounds one and two. It's like, wow, talk about getting off to a great start, right? Like, I mean, come on. I mean, it, it doesn't get any better than that. And somehow I went on to have a great result, including getting my grandmaster title. And during the tournament, Victor would kind of come up to me and say, oh, what, are you, what, 
do you think about that game? And I go, boom, 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 you go away. And he did this perpetually, you know, don't talk during the game. Mm-hmm. But he would come up, yeah. So at the very end of the tournament, we're kind of getting towards the closing ceremony. I actually think we're about ready to walk to the closing ceremony. Uh, Victor says, uh, yes, sir, uh, I'd like to ask you a question. I said, sure. He says, would you like to be my second? Now, the word second, by the way, is kind of unique to chess because it's sort of like there's a trainer, there's a coach. coach yeah. But a second is very, very clear. Like, he wants to work with me as a trainer, as a, and I'm going to be a kind of a vassal. I will you know, help Victor in his campaign for the world championship. I was, as you could probably guess, stunned into silence. Why? I was thinking of one thing only. Can I afford this? How much am I going to have to pay Victor? <laughs> like to, to, to work with him? He completely misunderstood my silence. He said, oh, oh of course, I'm sorry. Um, I pay all your expenses, all your travel, all your hotel costs, all your meals, uh, and can we agree to 500 Swiss francs a week? Which, by the way, at the time was a lot of money. And it dawned on me that he was offering to pay <laughs> me. He <laughs> like mutely stuck Deal. out my hand. Deal. Done. <laughs> And um, from 1980, March of 1980, more or less, to Murano, the World Championship in 1981, I think I calculated that I spent like 14 months with Victor Korchnoi. And I got to tell you, it was unbelievable. I was 20 years old, 20, 21. And Victor was double, maybe more my age. And I would be exhausted. Mm-hmm. His capacity for work was beyond anything I could have ever imagined. It was like ridiculous. And I remember from March of 1980 to, let's call it June 1980, I worked like with Victor for three months. And like every single day, we would bash each other and blitz and argue over moves and positions and... Oh, we had some great, great uh, clashes. Do you feel like this improved your chess? Because I oh, beyond measure, beyond measure. And I went to Malaga, Spain. I was invited by the Spanish Chess Federation to go to Malaga. And I had for three consecutive months, like ninety days, been bashing my head every day with Victor Korchno. He was like the number two player. In the world by far, there was no Gary Kasparov on the horizon. And I looked across at my opponents. You're not Victor Korshnoi. <laughs> it was a mauling. It was just, and it, it was, death. I was death incarnate. You know, like just went through this, this field, like, you know, hot knife through soft butter. Uh, Victor pushed me beyond anything I would have ever expected of myself. And Victor, Victor thought badly of his capacity to work. Mm. He thought other players worked a lot harder on their chess than he did, and it was all, it was like he's trying to play catch up. 
I'm like, dude, who are you competing with? <laughs> you know, like, this is really bad. Well, but he, I, he probably felt that he had to compete with the entire might of the Soviet justice because he was he was fighting against Karpov. That's precisely And he was a right. defector, right? Exactly. So he had to fight against exactly. the Soviet Union that really wanted to destroy him. Correct. And I, he was very, very fortunate. He had Michael Steen as a longtime second. I became very, very close with Michael. I thought he was just really one of the wor world's good guys. Then much later in the cycle, Grandmaster Lev Gutman joined our team. And Lev was amazing. Like, I've never seen a greater researcher. Lev just, like, at the tip of his fingers just had all of these games. And this was before databases, right? And so these were notebooks, right? Yes, He was just, precisely. like, piling up notebooks yeah. and games and, and analysis. Right. Yeah. Was he the one? Did you guys have, like, somebody designated uh, with keeping notes of what you guys were analyzing? I always kept notes uh, from a very, very early age. Uh, so but if, you guys were analyzing, let's say, mm -hmm. a position, the, the Grunfeld, right? Yeah. And somebody has to write everything that you guys were Lev analyzing. Lev did it on the spot. On the I spot. Did, I, did it, on the spot. I did yeah. it post. Post. Yeah. So I would write all my analysis afterwards. Hard. hard uh, but you will forget things here and there, right? I kind of thought of it in a different way. Rather, than, like, I got the, cr the cream. So, like, uh, uh, you, you were analyzing for 30 minutes. The important variations. Exactly. Right. And we, 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 we went on three false trails, but we found the right trail. And that was what I wrote down. So I remember this very vividly uh, in, in Buenos Aires, where Victor was playing against Lev Poligayevsky. And oh, it was just a brutal adjournment, just a brutal adjournment. And... Michael and I had really, really worked hard on it. I think we finished about 4 o'clock in the morning. I didn't go to bed. I desperately wanted to go to bed. I, I, I wrote like five, six pages of analysis on the game, and I stuck it underneath Victor's door, his uh, hotel door. Crashed. <laughs> about 8 in the morning. It was like this ferocious knocking on the door. And uh, it's Petra, his secretary, later they married. Petra, Victor needs you, he needs you desperately, you've got to come. Okay, I'll shower. No, he needs you now, he needs you now. Come on, Petra, no, come on. So I'm in my PJs, rumpled hair, everything. I go staggering over to Victor's room and Victor what do I do if he does that well so I grabbed the notes out of his hand you do this 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 oh so simple okay you can go exactly at that moment I'm at my worst. In comes this incredibly well-dressed man. Just beautiful, splendid, white hair. And just a bon vivant, full of life. He speaks Russian. He and Petra start bouncing around, jumping up and down, dancing around the room. He speaks Russian with Victor. 
they start hugging each other. They're bouncing around, sitting down around the room. He comes to me like he's going to grab me. He speaks to me in Russian. I go, I don't speak Russian. <laughs> he goes, American. I go, yeah. And he goes, Rostropovich. So Rostropovich was the head of the Washington, D.C. Orchestra, one of the great defectors of the Soviet Union. He was playing a concert in Buenos Aires. <laughs> and here I am in my PJs, looking like a complete idiot. <laughs> I go, nice to meet you. And he goes, what are you doing here? I say, I'm that guy's trainer. <laughs> But to be frank, it was his fault. Of course. He didn't read your notes correctly. Of course. Now, you also said that you were Wait, bashing what, heads. What were they so happy about? Just two yes. defectors coming oh, together they were just and to meet sharing each other. Okay. Their, their life. And apparently they knew each other at one time in the Soviet Union that Victor had mm -hmm. attended one of his concerts. And mm -hmm. <laughs> it was like pretty hilarious. Yes, sir. You were bashing heads with... Yes, you Victor. were competing at the same yes, time, right? Yes, yes, yes. With Victor Korchnoi. Absolutely. This battle of ideas. At any moment in time, did you guys get a quarrel in and no, didn't speak with each no, other for like three no, days no nothing like that on the contrary you to kick you out of the it, camp oh, or anything of that nature no on the contrary it was like we both had this incredible thirst for the truth mm. and like who's going to get there fastest first and i remember uh petra had bought this this chocolate easter bunny oh no 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 this was a swiss chocolate easter bunny that was probably half a meter tall This was like solid lint chocolate. Like the sucker was, was 30 pounds, man. And it was on the table. So we agreed whoever won the game could, you know, take a piece of this chocolate Easter bunny. You know, like, and that guy got whittled down until, you know, Michael showed up. Michael Steen showed up. I'm surprised that you guys never thought about anything. Because I, no. No. I remember... Like, not many, but there were definitely some arguments in, oh, in, my, absolutely. in my camps. Like, we, we oh, had yeah, your camps. Sorry, yeah, I was yeah. about to say that Victor was yeah. a, a, oh, yeah, that a, a too, difficult for sure. personality. Yeah. But just when you spend so much time with people, even fever. if yeah, I mean, no, and we, yeah. we fought over the stupidest thing. <laughs> like, who's going to get the last no, piece of it pizza? Was, <laughs> it was a blitz. We were playing a blitz game. And then I was like, okay, it's a draw. <laughs> Like, we were testing Nopi, and I was like, okay, we reached some endgame. I'm like, okay, it's a okay, draw. Okay, this is a draw. And he's like, no. no. <laughs> he's still slightly better. He wants to beat me. Right. And so we continue the endgame, and he beats me. <laughs> and I'm pissed Bastard. off. <laughs> yeah, right. And he's pissed off because I wanted to stop the game. Right. It wasn't a big argument, but we right. were fighting over this. And I remember, like, some other instances, too. Right. Because he... You know, like you said, 14 months with, with Korshoi, right? Oh, yeah. And I, and we, I mean, we never did anything like that. But still, three months, three months with people. I don't think like, it, uh, we ever quarreled oh. too much. But I do remember that at some point, me and Rustam didn't speak for like a week. <laughs> oh, Jesus. And I'm trying to remember <laughs> why. So I remember exactly I why. Remember why. So, <laughs> what did you guys do to one another? So I, I remember what happened between okay. Rustam and Christian. So Rustam was playing this tournament, the World Cup. Okay. And he pl was playing a tough match against Mamadi Arv. This is okay. a knockout system, right? No, but this was after. This was after. No, but this was like after this, he, he genuinely <laughs> was like incredibly <laughs> pissed. And he still is. <laughs> and this was years hate, ago. This was years the ago. The hate is burned. <laughs> slowly ebbing away. No, no, like <laughs> after this, 
There, anything could have set him off. <laughs> and so he what loses happened? this tough match against Mamadi Arf. And it's a he was like he was match. winning the last game, and he had to come back in that game. Oof. And he was so so close, playing a brilliant game, and then messes up at the last Just minute, slips. draws. That same day, after he finishes his game, Christian's like, "Hey, Rusum," and Christian wasn't watching. He wasn't following, so he I didn't was know. Watching. <laughs> you were. Yes. So you're. Well, trolling? the way I remember it is. And is, what happened? He and said, he's like, "Hey, Rusum, I, I need, um, I need something for chess base." And the timing. Was not was good. so bad <laughs> that Rustam was like, like I can't describe how pissed off. <laughs> like, and to me, it was so, like, okay, this is a minor deal, but white hot anger. <laughs> I I saw his game. I saw it finished. I, I I didn't understand. Maybe I understood that he lost the match, but I right. didn't put myself in his situation. You were right? spaced out for because, the of yeah. course, you lose a match at the World yeah, Cup, yeah, you yeah. get eliminated. It's, it's over, brutal. right? It's brutal. Uh, obviously, losing a game of it's chess so is cruel. painful, but losing a match and going home is yeah. even more painful. Yeah, and then. I had to get a chess base download code because my chess base activation code uh, expired. So uh, we uh, had this uh, common account, let's say, and right. we were sharing some uh, activation he, codes. He was a little bit pissed off before because when we played basketball, Christian would take his shirt off <laughs> and then block, shirt. block people. <laughs> Sometimes with his bare chest, like, you know, sweaty or <laughs> and something. Yeah. not happy about this at all. <laughs> oh. oh, but I do have one story to tell about Victor where I think something terrible is about to happen. Like really, really bad, like really bad. So Victor had the worst enemy ever, Tigran Petrosian. Mm. I mean, incendiary hot hatred that they had for one another. So much so that there was a barrier, a uh, dividing barrier at the table they played in, so they couldn't kick each other or come oh, to well. blows. Yeah. Oh, it was very, very serious. So if there's one person in this entire world that Victor hated, it was Tigran Petrosian. And obviously they played each other in the quarterfinals match. Really, really tough match. I mean, every game is like life and death. Seriously. Was uh, Victor a good player? To kind of externalize those those type of emotions and not let them affect him, or was he taking? You kind that of to the think, board? yes, but no. I no, mean, in, so in this particular case, I mean, Victor and Petrosian is just it, 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 there was something there. There's some bitterness, like just horror. Petrosian had problems with a lot of people. I was oh, reading Pal Benko's book. Yeah. And him and also his wife was apparently oh, difficult. Um, what, Rona Petrosian? Yeah. Oh, oh, the stories I could tell about her. Yeah, no, this was like really bad. Anyway, bottom line, Victor had two adjournments with Petrosian. One, he's worse, but we think he can save it, and we did some really good work. Michael and I had left the playing hall because after like 17 moves, Victor was just lost as white he's just lost and the queen's gambit declined where petrosian is black had a protected pass pawn on c3 how does that even happen how does that even happen it's like ah the worst the worst thing ever 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 so michael and i decided the best thing we could do is go back to the to our hotel and confirm our analysis that the adjournment is a draw and expect that Victor was going to lose this game. 
and then make some preparation for next game. So we did that, and then suddenly bursting in, Victor's like bouncing around the room. I mean, bouncing around the world room in happiness. I'm winning, I'm winning, I'm winning. And we can't believe it. So we all hopping around, bouncing. Yeah, 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 show us, show us. And he shows us his position, man. It's like ridiculous. The protected pass pawn by Black is still on C3, and Black has two super nice bishops as compensation for the queen. And maybe even another pawn. Like what? <laughs> winning? Dude. Winning? Dude, <laughs> You're, not winning. You're not even close. Get out of here, right? I'm winning. Wrong. Anyway, we do some analysis and it's not it's winning. Close. It's yeah. not winning. It's Is it still winning. losing? No. Okay. It's Fortunately. Better than it was. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But he's better. But maybe slightly better, right? But his assessment was getting was a bit wrong, more, just dead yeah. wrong. So he says, "Okay, look, seriously, I don't want you guys to work, which was impossible. Don't want you guys to work, but tomorrow Petrosian's going to take time out, so we'll have the whole day, and then we'll we'll, we'll work tomorrow. So just get some sleep." What do so, you mean by time off? So in those days, not only did you have adjourned games day, but you had playing days, adjourned games days, free days, and then each player could take a timeout whenever they wanted. Really? Two timeouts. Two timeouts per person. Until you got to a tie break, you know, extra games, then you get another timeout. So you could you take these timeouts. So yeah, Tigran's going to take a timeout. And sure enough, at like 10 a.m., we got informed by Harry Gallenbeck, the international arbiter, that Petrozian took a timeout. Great. So we had all of these days. So that evening, I had looked, you get the adjourned position. They have to go talk, 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 talk. They get to the crucial position. And in the crucial, crucial position, I want to play the move G2, G4, lifting the kimono of White's king. And it's the best move, and boom, 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 boom. And I work it all out. So we review our analysis of the first adjournment. Victor's satisfied. He's got the draw in hand, and now the key game. And so he says, I'm going to win like this, like this, like this, like this, like this. And I go, no, you're not, because of this and this and this, because I had my notes. <sighs> you're going to win with G4. Yeah, sir. Before you violate the rules of chess, you should first know them. <laughs> <laughs> so he was trolling you. Oh, yeah. He was really trolling you. Bam! Okay. So like, it takes me like the afternoon to recover from that one. Anyway, he can't make the game finish, and we we're working hard. After the dinner, it's 8 p.m. now, 8 p.m., a whole day, you know, literally from 10. Victor, please look at G4. Mm. It's a terrible movie. It's so Look, Rook C8. I go, bang, 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 bang. You're busted. Mm. Oh, okay. What about this? Bang, 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 you lose. Okay, H6, bravo, best move, H4. Well, how about this? Bang, 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 you lose. Oh, I have to play this, right. 
And he goes down this long-winded variation, like 12 force moves. Draw. You see, yes, or your variation doesn't work. It's still a draw. So, yeah, it's a draw. <sighs> Two o'clock in the morning. We work, 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 work. I write everything up, everything. And the next day, the adjournment day, Victor plays the first adjournment where he's worse. They play, seriously, not more than 15 minutes. Petrosian offers a draw. This is like a great relief. Michael and I high five. This is fantastic. So then they get like a 30-minute break, and I could go back to some, like, rest area. Like, the players have their own rest areas, too. <laughs> and so, like, Victor, you could have played G4. And he goes, mm, you don't like G4. He hates G4. I mean, every fiber of his being is not going to play G4. So I go back in the uh, playing hall. It's nice, darkened room, theater, you know, just chilling. The players come out, nice applause. The Austrian uh, organizers did a great job, and the uh, fans were just really, really, really appreciative. And the, it's old school, right? So, like, the, the, the board boy has to make the move on his demo boards, you know, with the sticks, right? You know, and all of the, the good stuff. They play the perfunctory moves. Everything is expected. They get to the key position. Without hesitation, Victor plays G4. <laughs> G4. He listened to you. Yeah. I'm ready to... I'm bursting <laughs> with delight. I'm ready to jump in the play hall. That's my move! <laughs> I'm so happy. I'm so happy. I'm so happy. I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> but you cannot say anything. Of course not. Silencio, por favor. And Petrosian makes all of these faces. Ten minutes later, he writes down his move. In those days, you would write down your move first, right? Ten minutes goes by, and Petrosian hasn't played his move. He starts thinking about it, and he, he races out the move. He writes down so another these move. Days, these days, it's not even allowed. Correct. You can't, you can't, you can't do that. You can't make you notes. Play it, right? Exactly. Yeah. And now 20 minutes goes by. Now, during these 20 minutes, a very strange thing starts happening to me. It's like, this is weird. My confidence is ebbing away. Oh, you see a move. No. What if I've made a mistake? What if I've overlooked a move mm -hmm that Petrosian finds at the board, refutes my analysis, Korchnoi loses, and I'm responsible for the loss to his greatest rival ever. As this realization starts to seep in, I mean, I start going into a panic mode. Oh my God, Victor's gonna fire me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be kicked out of the camp, you know. I'm going to be in the doghouse for, forever. I'll never get out of the doghouse. So I'm thinking the worst and the worst and the worst and the worst. 30 minutes goes by. The third time, Petrosian uh, crosses out his move, writes another one, plays rook c8. Which is losing. The very move that, that Korchnoi mm -hmm. tried. Bang, 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 bang. Victor wins. 
Hard the relief <laughs> was like palpable. I make my way out. I make my way out. And they're playing in like this town hall. And I go down the stairs and there's a, a chauffeur car waiting for Victor. And I've opened up the back door. Victor's walking down and he's got this fedora, this hat that he's got to hold on to because these Austrians have surrounded him as a crowd and they're singing some victory song in German. And he, he's like a leaf. He can't go at anywhere until, you know, like a few steps and more and a few steps and more. And he finally makes it into the car and he's wearing this big smile and he ducks into the car pulls back out of the car, looks at me and says, shut up, <laughs> gets in the car, and we go out to have a dinner. Oh my God, now today, this moment, I put in that position in the computer and instantly it finds G4. Yeah. It's validated, it's the correct mm. move. It but, avoids months of uh, work. But the Weeks, heart. Months of work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, pressure that I had. I didn't have any validation. Now it's a different feeling because you're, let's say you're watching the game now as a second. As a second. And you see all the correct moves. Correct. But you don't know if your player is going to make them. <laughs> it's just <laughs> Will he remember? So will he remember? The, 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 the responsibility is almost entirely off the second in that sense, I think. Right. The responsibility is more now... Did I recommend opening that my player doesn't know how to play well? Right. And he's going to get a position or she's going to get a position. Are they familiar with it that, or not? That they don't know. Right. And then they're going to play like shit. Right. And and they're going to be like, why did you recommend this to me? Right. I, don't know I didn't know what this. I was doing. Yeah, I don't know how to play the Caracon or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Um, but you're not going to have. So there was this very famous case, right? Kramnik Lako. Oh, really? I love it. I love everything about this Where story. Kramnik has this great has, idea. Has to play against the marshal. Exactly. He knows that Lako is playing the marshal in this match. Right. And he's they're they're hitting their heads against what to do against this opening, which is right. a super tough opening, right? Right. And Speedler has the idea. I don't mean to put Speedler on the spot on this one, but I think this is a well known story. Right. He has this idea. He's like, I still need a bit of time to polish it off. Right. Because, yeah, the computers say this and this and this, but we haven't looked at it enough. But he tells Kremig idea, and Kremig's like, no, I can't, I can't play something else in this game. I need to do it right now. I can't wait a few more days to play this idea. He goes to the board with Spiegler's idea. Right. Plays it all out. <laughs> like, goes thinking. <laughs> long time. <laughs> like, super, super long. Like, what am I supposed to do? Right. And then he makes a move. The move is queen d3. Right. Kremnik has a pawn in a7. This pawn is promoting. Right. But Lako plays queen d3, and Kremnik realizes doesn't matter if he's getting a queen. Right. He's up for a lot of material. He's getting made it. He's getting the made it. <laughs> the computers at the time just didn't show it. It was 2004. Right. They were strong. Right. They weren't strong enough. And uh, he loses the game, and this is, of course... Exactly. He loses the game, and uh, basically Peter uh, refutes uh, Kramnik slash Peter Spidler's preparation over the board. But I have to adjust your story just a little bit. Because, uh, just as you described it, Kramnik said, double check, double check, double check. And Peter said, yeah, 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 I got this, I got this. But there was a cricket match. <laughs> like, really, really marvelous cricket match that was on, on the TV that, you know, like, I mean, Peter just couldn't miss. I mean, it just, it just had to be viewed. And uh, essentially, Peter didn't do the work. <laughs> 
he didn't double, 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 triple check. And I remember Evgeny Badiev, who was also a second, uh, uh, was being interviewed in New in Chess magazine, and he's, he's describing the story very perfectly. Yes, it was very funny. <laughs> we'll because, leave it there, except for he, Vladimir. He won the match in that. that yeah, that's yeah. why it's funny. After winning the match, everybody gets like, ha ha, yeah. ha ha. Peter well, wasn't feeling too good. Speaking of feelings of seconds, right? Yeah. I think it was the first match in your match against Magnus when you were completely lost. Mm-hmm. But that was the only game in which I napped that afternoon. So I missed the moment where you could, could have, have been lost to get a heart moment, attack. It was like four hours long. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. It was so a I good nap. Good nap. Excellent nap. Like two hours. And I right. woke up immediately after the 41st move, I think. And this then was, I was the okay. exact then one I was okay. when he was already okay. Yeah. The crisis I went passed. through the game and I was like, holy smokes. This is if terrible. I would have been awake, during that time, no, I would have had nightmares for the next week. Exactly, you know? exactly. But we we had a, I realized this after the match. Right. We had we prepared one line specifically. <laughs> I had prepared one line, so this was on me because okay. I, I also took some of the brunt of the analytical work. Sure. And there was one line which I prepared pretty much exclusively, and I think Alejandro also prepared a bit of it. It was in the Petrop. It was Petrop, black, yeah. and we never saw this in the match. Mm-hmm. But it was something I was ready to play. Right. And then I'm checking it like a week after, two weeks after the match. Right. And I see, wait, White has this move, and it's checkmate. <laughs> and I'm like, oops. Well, that would have been embarrassing. <laughs> and I couldn't blame anyone because I was the one who, who analyzed no, it. No, that was uh, on you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and I remember this uh, 1979 as a World Junior Championship in Skien, Norway. My second was John Donaldson. And I had done a series of simuls in Seattle to raise the money so that I could take John. I mean, that was, again, the extent of, you know, how professional we were. And uh, it was the last round, and I needed draw as black against James Plaskett, Grandmaster Plaskett, uh, who needs a win as white to get the bronze. So I played the Caro. I got some uh, isolated queen pawn position something very very normal maybe 19 moves deep and I offer a draw um, and Jim like very very dismissive like no <laughs> like we play some more moves and at this point I'm, a, I'm gonna say I'm slightly slightly better but it was just one of those positions that I really feel comfortable in so Jim, with a very heavy heart, says, I, I offer you a draw. No, something stuck in my craw. I don't even know what it was. I said, make your move first, and I'll consider it. <laughs> Got up from the board. Jim goes into like a 40-minute think, right? And just about this time, John Donaldson, man, he's just so nervous. He's, he's run the marathon. I'm not kidding. <laughs> he's done like a 10K. You know, he comes in the... into the play all all hot and sweaty exhausted like how's Yasser doing he's declined to draw that's what he's told it's usually a good thing (laughs) right (laughs) and and with a draw I'm a gold medal I win the gold medal like like John's disbelieving so somehow I'm standing up to the rope next to the rope and John comes up to me and does what 
any good second would do. He grabs me by the throat. <laughs> he says, you didn't decline a draw, did you? I said, even if Jim blunders his queen, <laughs> I'm accepting the draw. Very good. Now, <laughs> now go on and make your draw. And Jim made some, you know, move yeah. and I draw. Thank you very much. But this role of a second, man, it's underrated. It's, it's really tough, yeah. Wow, 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 wow. Um, for me, my role was very supportive of Victor, but he was always the captain. He's the captain of the ship. So if he says, look, uh, I'm going to play the Berlin, which he did, and I didn't like the variation of the Berlin, he, he chose. He's, he chooses the one with knight B7 mm-hmm. instead of yeah, D takes C6. Really. It's called the Rio, Rio? Whatever it's called. I didn't like it, yeah. but he said it's good for one game. It was. <laughs> Garpov destroyed him. Uh, <laughs> very famous game. Very famous yeah. game. And it was sort of like, you know, uh, even if Victor was going to make an opening or a defense that he... Uh, that I abused. I just like, oh, this is the worst thing ever. Then it was like, okay, you're going to play it. I disagree, but I'm going to support you a thousand percent. I'm going to try my yeah. best. I think this is the, you know, this is the best way. The player has the choice. Exactly. Also has the responsibility. Right. At the end of the day, it's his. You know, it, it's, yeah, exactly. You have to take it's responsibility on for your own games. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but that was. That was uh, that was tough. Um, one other very interesting story I just have about Victor Korchnoi. So we were playing in the Canary Islands, uh, Grand Canaria, and uh, we're staying at this hotel, really wonderful resort right on the beach. There's an island about, oh, I'm going to say 300 yards away from the beach. It's a nice swim, is essentially, but it's, it's going to be a 20-minute swim in an open ocean. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, Victor, we got to make this swim. And he said, okay. So we swam to the other side. We basked on the other side. And it came time to go back to our hotel, like lunch, right? And a frogman got out of the water with, you know, tank and scuba equipment and everything. And Victor says, I, I, I don't go swimming. Mm. You, you go, you get the boat, and you you paddle, you know, rowboat, you come back and pick me up. I'm not swimming back. I said, but you swam here, you can swim back. He says, no, no, you got to go get the rowboat. I was like, dude, come on, go get the rowboat. Okay, I got it. I'm going to go. And I did. So I'm rowing him back to shore. He said, well, why didn't you want to swim? He says, well, I, I, I vacationed often in Odessa. Okay, and um, if the if the lifeguard saved you from drowning, you got the lifeguard got like five rubles as a you know great hero of the state. You saved this poor person from drowning, but if they brought back your body, you know for burial because you drowned, you got like fifty rubles. 
So that guy was uh, <laughs> that frog. The frog man was looking terrified. for terrified. <laughs> he was, he was getting get those fifty rubles. No, yes. You can take the boy out of the country. You can't take the country out of the boy. There's fifty rubles. That fifty stake. rubles was at stake. <laughs> so there was some moments like that. Just the little cultural clashes. Mm -hmm. They kind of appeared. I don't know if you guys had any cultural clashes. Oh, we had we had one which was. Kind of funny. So Christian brought this game over at some point. It was called Spion. What? That a was spy. The, spy. A spy. Yeah. Okay. It was it was a pretty simple game where you had one person who's a spy and the other people who know the location. Right. The spy has to figure out the location. Other people have to figure out the spy based on asking questions. Got it. And so one of the locations was an auto shop. Okay. And I don't remember who was a spy. This was this was a game with Lenny or Dominguez with. Uh, Rustam, oh, Christian, really yeah. everyone from different places. Gotcha. But we all identified an auto shop as a dishonest place. Generally a dishonest. Chop shop. Yeah. So Parts. one of the questions was, do you expect to see honest people in this place? And Christian's like, yeah. We're like, he's a spy. <laughs> And he wasn't. It turns out he wasn't. <laughs> right. we, we killed the wrong spy. Right. And we're like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, in Romania, our auto shops are very trustworthy. <laughs> <laughs> you go, you pay, you get the service uh, exactly. for what What's you pay for. Yeah. Wow. I, I still doubt that this is true. Wow. Okay, that's a, that, that, that's a kind it's of an interesting uh, cultural clash. I have one that was very, very, very funny. Um, I liked it a lot uh, in Seattle. I was very proud. My friend Bob Walsh. He was the chairman of the Seattle Goodwill Games in 1990. Uh, the Goodwill Games were created by Ted Turner because we had, in the v invasion of, of Afghanistan by the Soviet Union, we had boycotted the 1980 Moscow Olympics. They returned the favor and boycotted the 1984 uh, Olympics in Los Angeles. So Seattle had uh, created these Goodwill Games, and Bob Walsh was the chairman. And so it was all of these cultural exchanges between the Soviet Union and the United States. So the Moscow Circus came into town, the Bolshoi Ballet, and Bob had this idea that he wanted to organize and host a candidates tournament. And the candidates tournament that we bid for and received was <clears throat> between Anatoly Karpov and Johan Hjartarsson from Iceland. And we organized it, let's say, in February of uh, 1990. And everything was wonderful. I was really at the top of my game. I was really, really happy with everything and just delighted that my home city could host this, this uh, I'm going to say, semifinal candidates. Anyway, shock of shock, you know, like day three or something like that, day three of the game. Uh, Seattle got like five inches of snow. Mm -hmm. Holy smokes, man. It was like the city came to a standstill. So I uh, had breakfast with Bob, and he's like, oh, man, we got to cancel. Organizers, time out. Tell the players, uh, no game today. So I go uh, call uh, the Sheraton where they're saying, uh, sorry, Johan, uh, no game today. He's like, why not? Well, look out your window. Yeah, it's snowing. Yeah, so what? It's like five inches of snow. 
yeah, so? I mean, I'm from Iceland. This is nothing. This doesn't even, this doesn't even count as a flurry. I want to play. Damn. I call it Karpa. Uh, no game today. Why not? <laughs> Five inches of snow. Look outside your window. No way. I want to play. It's from Siberia. Right, from <laughs> Moscow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so talk about the cultural thing. Yeah. So the, those guys obviously get picked up, and the car's creeping its way mm -hmm. to the playing hall. They're like, step on it. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> I, just, I mean, it's Seattleites, man. We couldn't believe it. You know, like the snow, boy. Boy, we were terrified of the snow. Yeah, sir. I, we're approaching two hours with Please. podcasts. Oh, my. Um, we could probably be telling stories all, all night, day, I have to say. Day, now, we just finished the St. Louis Rapid and Blitz, yes. and Ali Reza played an Fantastic. incredible tournament. Yeah. Tell us a bit about your assessment of this young man. Extraordinary. I mean, he's obviously a, a phenomenal player. Um, it's, it, it's really, it, in some ways, it's kind of hard to comprehend because uh, what I want to say is you watch a tournament like the Sinkfield Cup and you interview the players after the games and the first thing that Fabi says is like, I wanted to get a game. I wanted to get play so that we have this contest of two wills and you know, it's just so hard to win a game. It's just very, very hard to win a game. And the dude goes like plus five in you know, one of these uh, blitz you know, uh, portions in one day. So he makes it look easy. He's not only getting a game, he's out playing the players from positions you don't expect. And uh, he, there, was a, there was a moment in the, I think all world champions have that, whether it be Karpov, Kasparov, Magnus, they have a little intimidation factor. Mm. Like, and I can't explain it. Levon is black. He has a bishop on d7, defending a knight on c6, which is attacked by a bishop on g2. Levon thinks, not for five seconds or 10 seconds, but something like 20 seconds, yeah, like and goes bishop on d7 to f5, attacking a pawn on d3. Ali Reza takes the knight. <laughs> you know, and it's like, dude, you're lost in one move. And it's like, I don't know if he's intimidating. Players, like, players were playing strange. Nepo was white. Plays a Catalan. Plays a line of the Catalan where he's marginally worse and can hang on for a draw as white. Mm -hmm. You're thinking to yourself, dude, what kind of opening choice was that? I you mean, were supposed you, to know that. Yeah. Right? And it was really, really strange watching. So it's not only that He's obviously, you know, great talent. But he also is intimidating his opponents. At least that was my sense watching the games. I wasn't in the playing hall itself, uh, so I didn't pick up that vibe. But I'm just saying, like, this guy is the real deal. I mean, he's scary good. Absolutely, yeah. Super uh, good player. A lot of uh, potential. 
left for him to uh, unravel. Uh, Yasser, thank you very much for joining us. It Guys, was a pleasure. No, on the contrary, I want to wish you both the best of success. Thank you, Yasser. I really feel that you got the wrong guy. <laughs> 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 I mean, like, that was great. Look, somewhere in this hotel, you got, I'm not kidding, right now about 15 grandmasters. <laughs> I should have been like the last guy. Wonderful. Not LeBron only that we got the right guy, we'll get you back again. Oh, I, 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 I love it. Uh, I got a lot of stories, sad to say. Uh, marvelous, marvelous, funny, funny stories, whether they be about Bobby Fischer, David Bronstein, Bent Larson, all of these legends of the past. And it's like really sad. These chess books, they devoted themselves to good move, bad move. Yes, yes. They didn't tell well, the real speaking, humor. Speaking of, of which, one of my world. favorite books was Pal Benko's the the, the thick was, book it was an autobiography it was around a thousand pages right by jeremy his silman best it's yeah. brilliant jeremy silman was the, yeah. the editor i think exactly included his best game studies everything but his story. his life story was great Extraordinary. so yeah i think those those kinds of books are are fantastic and they're so rare it, it, it it's really a gem i'm really glad you mentioned it but if you get a book like vasily smyslov's best games so it's 200 games a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful chess where uh, Smyslav doesn't mention anything about himself. Not a single word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was all, here I played this move, good move, here I played this move, good move, I have better ending. And that's basically the vision behind this podcast as well. Give yeah. voices to guys like you. Of course, you Love have been story. on air for so yeah. many years. Sure, sure, sure. These stories, we have heard them, but... right. We want this type of long-form conversation to right. happen between us and the chess players and right. give it to the world, basically. Sounds like you need to get Rustam <laughs> on the show and I'm tell sure him we'll, to open up. We'll like, just open up the spigot, let it, let, let, let it fly. You're, you're trying to start some fires. I'm trolling uh, yes, you guys. Yes. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. But um, seriously, uh, much, much success. And uh, uh, thank you. Thank you, Yasser. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us.